Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Daniel Jigger! Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. So I'm actually back in AEI Studios. It's very exciting. Um, and uh, we have a guest that we've been trying to get on here for a long time, which you wouldn't think would be as hard to do in normal circumstances, given that he's a friend and colleague of mine at the American Enterprise Institute. But he's been a little busy. Um, he is uh, Scott Gottlieb, uh, former commissioner of the FDA. Do you have a special title at AI that I'm unaware of? Senior fellow. Senior fellow, okay. What's your title? I, I am the holder of the Cliff Asnes Chair in Applied Liberty. Mm-hmm. And if you can get Cliff to explain to me what Applied Liberty means, um, I'll buy you a beer. I think senior fellow sounds simpler. Uh, it does. And actually, you, I think you outrank me because I can't be a... Uh, I'm not a senior fellow. I'm just a fellow. Um, I, I don't quite understand the zoology of titles. Here. Well, you're a senior fellow to me. I appreciate that. And you can't be a, I only learned fairly recently that you can't be a scholar unless you have a PhD. You'd think MDs would qualify, but I guess not. Um, uh, anyway, so you're here, you have a new book out, Uncontrolled Spread. It's about this thing some people might've heard of called the, uh, coronavirus or something like that. It's, um... It's doing well. It's extremely well-reviewed. For me, the sort of um, acid test was when Alex Tabarak gave it a very positive review in the Wall Street Journal. And Alex was a great guy and is kind of like that rogue journalist who was the only person in the world who believed the Hulk was real in the old Hulk TV show. Um, he's been obsessed with the pandemic from the beginning and has lots of good recommendations. And for him to give it the good housekeeping seal of approval was a big deal. The problem is you've been on like every podcast in Christendom. Um, in the 90s, we had the phrase called the full Ginsburg, which was named after William Ginsburg, who was Monica Lewinsky's lawyer, who managed to be on every single Sunday show, which was a first. You probably remember that Sunday. I do remember well. So now we have to come up with a similar term for podcasts, like the full Gottlieb, because you've been on every one of them. And I have to ask you some slightly different questions just to get something new out of you. So to start with, this is this is hugely important to me, and it's hugely important to Scott Lincecum, uh, scholar at the Cato Institute, writer for The Dispatch, and um, who recently wrote that Pfizer should make even more money, and you're on the board of Pfizer, so you should like him. He is obsessed with the fact that... Um, uh, Yogurt expiration dates are totally bogus. Is this true? Well, I wouldn't say they're totally bogus. So expiration dates um, don't necessarily correlate with when the food actually expires. They're set. They're obviously set with a margin um, of of error built into them, and some of them are 
sometimes you have food producers who set expiration dates for commercial reasons because they want to turn over food supplies. So I would not urge the public to willfully ignore expiration dates. They are the best guide that we have. FDA has been actually tightening this up in recent years, putting uh-huh. out new guidance, compelling uh, food manufacturers to have scientific evidence to support when they put short expiration dates on food, because you obviously want to avoid food wastage. And this was a big initiative when I was at FDA to try to cut down on food wastage by rationalizing expiration dates. Now, with respect to yogurt, I don't know specifically. I mean, it's already rancid, right? Right. That's well, the whole point. well, but it's probably not an expiration date I'd want to mess around with, like sour cream, yogurt. There's certain expiration dates that I'd probably pay more attention to. You know, potato chips, maybe you let that go a little bit. Okay, so by this afternoon, there will be a meme on Twitter or someplace saying that you are in the pay of big yogurt, but it's not true. You have no relationship with Well, it would be big dairy. It wouldn't be big yogurt, probably. The charge would be big dairy, yeah. Okay, so you're you're confirming it. <laughs> well, I'm not confirming it. I'm just saying, I'm, I'm just, I know how the politics of this plays out. The, the yogurt, it's not the yogurt industry, it's the dairy industry. Fair enough. Okay, so uh, let's go to this other thing that people are talking about, uh, this pandemic thing. Um, where are we right now? What is the state of play? You were talking for a long time about how you thought the Northeast was going to have a big Delta spike. Do you still think that's true? Um, are we through the worst of it? Well, I don't know where, I didn't say we we're going to have a big Delta spike. I'm not sure which podcast you heard that on, but, <laughs> but <laughs> there's so many, but, but, um, I think that this Delta surge of infection is the last major wave of infection that's going to sweep over the U.S. We need to recognize that this is happening in a regionalized fashion. So the South had a very dense epidemic, and it's coming down very sharply right now. The situation in Florida and and Texas is improving very rapidly. So cases nationally are falling, but they're, they're rising very quickly in the West and the Midwest. And overall, when you look at the national averages, it looks like it's coming down because you have very populous states declining um, precipitously and less populated states seeing v- case growth um, accelerate quickly. and But the, the growth in cases in the Midwest and the West isn't enough to offset the declines in more populated states. The question is, are we then going to see it migrate further north to the Great Lakes region in the Northeast? I still think the answer is yes. I don't think that we see an epidemic here in the Northeast that's going to look like what the South looked like or what the Midwest look like, looks like now. Um, But I would expect that we could get to 40 cases per 100,000 people per day. To put that in perspective, the Midwest right now, most states are around 80 cases per 100,000 people per day. Florida at its peak was at 120 cases per 100,000 people per day. Right now, um, New York City is at about 26. Massachusetts is 23. Connecticut's 12. So much less. I, I could see it pick up and double from where we are right now. This Delta wave hopefully should run its course by Thanksgiving. And I think on the back end of this Delta wave, prevalence will decline because most of the country will either have been infected or vaccinated. Um, Do you ever get sick of talking about this stuff? I mean, like you have these numbers at the palm of your hand. You have to stay up to speed on them. Is it you get exhausted with this? I know book tours are exhausting in and of themselves, but I mean. No, I think, look, I think it's important to be out there talking about these things um, in the public over the last year so. Uh, but you can do important things and be exhausted. Oh, it's been it's been a long year in all of us. I, 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 a lot of people have had a more difficult year than I have. Fair enough. Um, all right, so I have a question that our our colleague uh, Lyman Stone brought this up first two weeks of the pandemic or something like that. One of the first podcasts I had where we talked about the podcast. He was still talking about the pandemic. He was still in 
um, Hong Kong at the time, and which was an interesting perspective in the early days. And he was the first person to flag this point that excess deaths are way above, um, epidemiologically, excess deaths are way above the COVID death toll. Um, and every time I check in on this, that seems to be the case, is that do you have a rough explanation for why excess deaths are so far above the um, the COVID death rate? Yeah, I've seen various reporting on this, and it you know a lot of it depends on how you cut the numbers and and what region you're looking at and what time period you're looking at. Because I've seen I've seen this get reported many different ways to make many different points, but on the whole, I wouldn't be surprised if excess deaths this year were higher than what we've seen in past years, even accounting for COVID deaths, because you have a lot of um, extreme morbidity related to some of the things that we've done to deal with COVID. I mean, you, you have higher rates of um, drug abuse, higher rates of alcohol use. Tell me about it. Higher rates of uh, mental health disease as a result of the things that have happened over the last year. Um, you know, you could postulate that you have higher rates of certain accidents as well. So certain things, probably there's less deaths associated with it. Think people aren't maybe going out and driving as much or doing certain things that create risks of accidents, but for other things, we're creating more risk in society. I think the real, um, impact of this though, isn't going to be seen. If you, if you're, if you're postulating that COVID itself has caused a rise in death and disease from non COVID related causes, I wouldn't just be looking at excess deaths over the next, over the last 12 months. I mean, I think this is going to play out over the next five years where we're going to see rising rates of, you know, cancer deaths, rising rates of diabetes, all kinds of diseases that are going to accrue because of the poor health and poor health practices that went on during the pandemic. Also failures to get, to just go to the doctor, right? To failures get, catch to get stuff routine, early, you know. Failures to get vaccinated, vaccination rates are down among kids. I mean, there's a whole host of health measures that are just down that aren't going to translate in into the morbidity statistics in a single year. There are things we're going to be measuring for five years. There's going to be data coming out for the next decade quantifying just what the impact was of the pandemic and 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 the shutdowns and the lost work and the homeschooling and all the other features. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons why I'm interested in this is that, uh, I, I and I, I think it's a safe bet that you're aware that there are certain people on the right who think the pandemic is overblown, that the numbers are overblown, that the the COVID death numbers are padded, and that they're counting people who died, you know, died 85 years old, um, who would have died from a cold, and they they chalk it up to COVID. And, I, and I'm sure that some of that, you know, with this many deaths, there's some of that going on. Whether it's a rounding error or not, I have no idea. But if you just take a step back and say, okay, even if that's true, something is driving these excess deaths at a, you know, the, the, the total death rate attributable in some way to the pandemic is very large and requires people to take it seriously. And there's just this sentiment on certain parts of the right to make it, sound like this whole thing has been overblown, a triviality. There's still types who say it's just the flu and that kind of thing. What is, I mean, have you given up trying to sort of talk to these kind of people or push back on this kind of thing? Well, I don't know that I, I, I don't interact with it that much anymore, to be honest. And, and I think maybe that's an admission that I've given up on trying to push back. The, the, the facts are the facts. You know, you can look at the the case fatality rate now, um, 
you know, in New York City, I think we're at 0.2% or maybe 0.25% of the entire population of New York City is dead from COVID. So, you know, people who want to say the case fatality rate is only 0.1%, then how do you explain the fact that, you know, almost triple that uh, is is actually dead from COVID in New York, and we know the entire city of New York didn't get COVID. Right. So, you know, they're just sort of simple metrics like that, grim metrics that just, you know, easily refute some of these presumptions. Uh, it's the, the whole, this whole episode has been uh, a exercise in sort of serial misinformation uh, and misjudgment by those who wanted to downplay this virus at every step. I mean, you're right. The first, the first um, argument was this is no worse than the flu, clearly worse than the flu. Um, the, the case fatality rate is no more than 0.1%. Clearly it's more than 0.1%. It's probably 1%. It's probably exactly what we thought it was, at least in the first wave. It's come down now because we're treating it better. You know, you just had sort of these serial um, elements of misinformation entering the dialogue. You know, it's hydroxychloroquine cause, uh, cures it. Mm. And it's just, we're just suppressing information about it. We're willfully suppressing information. Well, you know, there were dozens and dozens of rigorous studies done in good faith that proved that it wasn't having a treatment effect. It just moves on. You know, the debate moves on to, to other things. It's like whack-a-mole, right? You knock down one thing and then the the the, the unifying theme is I don't want to take the vaccine or I don't want to take COVID seriously. And then they just find the nearest rationalization to hand and each one you knock down, a new one pops up. I'm not sure it's that deliberate. I think it's the, the unifying theme is that COVID sort of an organized conspiracy. And um, there's these elements of truth that the, that's being withheld from the public that, you know, hydroxychloroquine cures it and um, it's no worse than the flu. That, that, that's, that's a, there's a sort of truth standard um, that's not being um, recognized. Um, all right. So a big part of your book, um, or an important part of your book is your criticisms of the early phases of the, of the pandemic. Um, specifically the, um, the, we're not supposed to curse on this podcast, the fecal festival that was, uh, testing. Um, particularly in the United States. What happens if you curse? Is it your advertisers pull out? Uh, we end up having a an E explicit rating on our podcast. Just for one curse? I believe so, if they catch it. Uh, two. two? two. Oh, okay. okay. So, so yes, if you want to curse, you are free to curse. Uh, Shit. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, you know, so walk us through why... Um, why did the CD? Why and how did the CDC, in particular, um, screw up the the rapid testing regimen, which would have helped? And why was that so important? The diagnostic test, the, the first rollout. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, this was a political failure too, because there there was a political presumption that CDC had the ball here, that CDC was going to be able to ma manufacture its own tests, scale the production, and deploy it to the labs, which was never going to happen. I mean, even in a perfect world, if CDC was this highly equipped, really competent organization, which it demonstrated that it wasn't, um, none of that would have happened. So the, so the political leadership didn't recognize uh, that CDC just was structurally limited from accomplishing the mission that they, they envisioned that it was going to exercise. And CDC at no point said, you know, we really, let us, we, let us let you in on a little secret. We don't do this. We, we, <laughs> there's no way we're going to be able to do this. Right. So they just took this mission and 
they started manufacturing a test. Um, they contaminated it because they decided that they were going to manufacture the test in the same facility that they were also processing patient samples, which is, you know, sort of one-on-one not to do in any lab. Sure. It's a violation of every good lab practice. And so the, the, the viral RNA hopped from the patient samples that they were testing into the test kits. They shipped those test kits out to the 100, 100 public health labs they work with. But a couple of things here. Number one, even if the CDC had done it, everything right, they would have... And, and were successful, their success would have meant that they would have shipped tests out to the 100 public health labs in the country who are each capable of doing 100 tests a day. So that's 10,000 tests a day. We were at a point that we needed a million tests a day, not 10,000. So it was never going to be enough. Number two, what, we really, what really needed to happen was we needed to get the commercial manufacturers in the game, the large commercial manufacturers and large labs. Someone needed to pick up the phone and call those guys in January and say, hey, this looks bad. We need you to start ramping up the development of tests because it takes four to six weeks to do that. Nobody made that phone call as best I can tell. That phone call didn't get made to February. But if you were a commercial manufacturer and you said, you know what, nobody's called me and asked me to do this, but I'm going to do it on my own because I see this virus in Wuhan and I'm worried that mm -hmm. we're going to need more testing. You're Roche, you're Thermo Fisher, you're Kaidel. You'd need two things or one of two things. You'd need access to the virus. Mm -hmm which CDC wouldn't give anyone till the end of February because they jealously guarded the viral samples. Only they had them. Only they could use them. Or if you couldn't get access to the virus, which would have allowed you to design your own test, you could have said, you know, CDC won't let me get the virus. So I really can't design my own test. So why don't I just copy the CDC's test design? So you would have gone and tried to copy CDC's test design. They would say, no, 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 that's our intellectual property. Those are our patents. You're going to have to license it from us. And they actually put in front of companies. This was in the middle of a crisis, these long licensing agreements. And I saw them and I talked to companies over this time period. And the company said, forget it. When you know We can't negotiate with CDC for three weeks over giving away intellectual property because CDC jealously guards their IP and wants to retain rights and royalties on these tests. So they said, CDC said they have this ball. We'll let them go with it. And it, it froze every manufacturer out of the market. Now your next question is going to be how, how did how could this be? And my answer is I don't I can't I can't explain it. This is cultural, it's institutional. Um, CDC jealously guards its prerogatives. This is how things have been done in the past, and no one no one challenged this kind mm -hmm. of approach. So, because it's, it's I've heard you explain this before, and it is a difficult thing to get your head around. Like I I totally get it. I go to Pfizer. And I ask, which again, you were on the board of, uh, how about Merck? Merck. I got go, I go to Merck and I say to Merck, Hey, um, I want to use your, you know, uh, you know, equipment design, blah, 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 blah. And Merck says, well, okay, we got to pay us a royalty because it's our patent. Totally makes sense to me. Right. Is this a common practice throughout the, I mean, there's like the, at the nuclear regulatory agency, do they have. IP that they want demand royalties from? I mean, is yeah, this... Yeah, so this, this is very CDC... Look, I can't speak of every agency, but CDC, this is very CDC-specific. And when you talk to people at CDC, they all point back to a, a sing, single episode, which I document in a book, where the company Chiron used in, intellectual property that was purportedly um, invented at CDC about isolating the hepatitis C um, gene to make a test for hepatitis C that they then went on to profit from handsomely. And CDC and the researcher at CDC sued Chiron for royalties, for money. Mm -hmm. Chiron ultimately won in court two different cases, but settled with CDC and, and the CDC researcher and paid them 
money, paid C- the CDC researcher in particular, I think it was five years. Then when the CDC researcher left CDC and went to work in the World Health Organization, he sued them again <laughs> for more royalties after the agreement, the initial agreement had lapsed. So you saw that this history where there was a perception inside CDC that they had invented something and a company profited from it and the person who invented it didn't get any money or didn't get their fair share. And when you talk to CDC about why you so jealously guard IP around the work you do, that's what they point to. Now, those ethos don't exist in other federal agencies where there's a perception that you as an individual could patent something and profit from it. But mm-hmm. in CDC, that does exist. And so the, the the individuals in CDC who work on things guard their IP, not just as an institutional prerogative, but also as a personal prerogative. At, at FDA or NIH, I don't think you have scientists who think about their own ability to profit directly from inventions they work on as part of the institutions. And it might might have changed at CDC too, but this is part of the sort of lore. And, when, and whenever I brought this up, whenever I challenged people at CDC and said, how could you guys, you know, slow down the rollout of tests for COVID with these complicated IP agreements, they, they would say to me, oh, but S- Scott, don't you remember what happened with Chiron? <laughs> um. So in a, in a, let's not say a perfect world, in a better world, um, what would have been the, I mean, obviously get rid of this IP thing, right? But like, how would we have rolled out the, the, the testing regimen? Yeah. So in a, in a better world and I would say perfect world, I mean, you know, the, the outcome wasn't going to be perfect, but, but the approach could have been perfect. So at some point by the end of January, um, you would have picked up the phone, and this wasn't hard. This didn't take tremendous foresight. This didn't take some, you know, political leader with enormous vision and a rare breed. You would have picked up the phone in January, and you would have said, "Well, you, well, let me, let me, let me proceed this." You would have turned on the TV, and you would have seen the Chinese government shutting down an entire province, crushing their economy, and locking people in their homes. And you would have said to yourself, "That looks really bad." Yeah. Maybe that's going to come here, and and maybe and maybe we're going to have to you know take extraordinary steps. So I don't want to be in that position. Maybe if we had a diagnostic test, we could actually diagnose in people who are presenting with flu-like symptoms to see if this virus is spreading in the U.S. And you would have said the way we're going to get a lot of diagnostic testing into the market is if I pick up the phone right now and I call um, Kaidal Roche, Thermo Fisher, a couple other companies. Pick, mm-hmm. pick your five companies. And I say we need you guys to get in this game. Um, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll promise you a very efficient regulatory process. We'll prioritize your applications. We'll work with Congress to get funding in place so that we do purchase. So you're not just left, you know, uh, holding a lot of money out a lot of money, but we can't do all that now. In the meantime, we need you to start this process. And if you would have called a couple of big companies, I guarantee they all would have done it. Yeah. I've made those phone calls in other situations in other public health emergencies. I've never been told no. That's that phone call didn't get made as best as it could tell, like I said, until the end of February. Nobody did it. Everyone just was playing off this playbook. And I got a copy of the playbook. It was a six-month plan that they had on how they were going to roll out diagnostic testing um, that in like month six had them engaging the commercial manufacturers. This highly sequential process. We didn't have six weeks, let alone six days. So that would have been the ideal world. And the the one point that I was a very big missed opportunity, do you remember the date of the meeting, the ACLA meeting? In, in Washington, I talk about in the book. Oh, I think, oh, can she get? Can she be on a podcast too? Uh, yeah, I mean, she's not on a mic, but it's all right. Uh, so there was so there was a meeting in in it was already March. 
was already lunch. Yeah. So there was a meeting. It was later on, actually. It shows you how late it took them to get to get to this, where the entire um, lab industry was in Washington. The last meeting these guys were going to attend in person, the American Clinical Lab March Association, 4th. March 4th. And um, the FDA commission, the acting FDA commissioner, oh, is that actually, yeah, he, was a, he was the real FDA commissioner at that time, spoke to the meeting and gave this like, you know, boilerplate speech of like, we're here to work with you. These were all the companies that could do this, right? And I called the White House and I said, you guys got to get these CEOs into a meeting at the White House and just tell them they have to do this. Like they've got to get in game. And I ended up putting up a tweet, which was you know, like the only thing I can do, saying, you know, to the industry, to the CEOs, you will be judged by what you do now. Um, it was like one of the most pointed tweets I put out because um, that was, a in my view, that was a pivotal moment. They were in Washington. It was an opportunity for the commissioner to issue a strong call to action to get in the game. The vice president, to his credit, took the meeting and pulled them all into the White House. But this can't happen at the White House. The White House doesn't know what to ask for. Mm -hmm. This has to happen at a level below the White House. That should have happened in January. It barely happened in March. By that point, it was too late. Yeah. I mean, it's it's funny. When you describe what should have happened, first of all, it sounds very much like what we did during World War II. We just called up all the big industries and said, get on board, do this, arsenal of democracy but, time. But also, it sounds a lot like warp speed, except it should have been for diagnostic testing. What's the difference there? In yeah. The model? I, I mean, we can get to warp speed. I'll, I'll give you an example. Let me give you an example of like what how this plays out, at least from my estimation. And I don't mean to suggest that the things I grappled with at FDA were on par with what these folks were grappling with. They clearly were not. Mm -hmm. right? But, you know, w w the situation with COVID was an inordinate magnitude, worse, more complex, more pressure on these public officials. But after after Hurricane Maria devastated Puerto Rico um, and knocked off all the production on that island, 10% of all medical products that are consumed in the U.S. are manufactured in Puerto Rico. We were worried about a cascading sh series of shortages, but one that we were worried about in particular was a shortage of bags used to collect blood. Because there's only two facilities that manufacture those plastic bags used to collect blood. And the facility in Puerto Rico did a lot of that work. And the critical component to manufacturing those bags is oxygen. We couldn't restart the oxygen facility on the island. We have enough electricity to do it. And we couldn't bring enough oxygen into the island. So we were worried that there was going to be a shortage. And at that moment, right around that same time, was the massacre at Mandalay Bay that you remember mm -hmm. the shooting. What happens after mass shooting events is you get a surge of people uh, donating blood. And so we were very worried that the combination of a shortage of bags with a surge of donations would consume the available supply and then it would trigger a, a, a shortage going forward of blood bags and we would have a, basically a, a blood shortage in the country. Mm -hmm. So I called around to a few manufacturers who had the capability to repurpose bags that they were making for other uses, other medical uses for blood collection. Not something easy to do. They had to retool their lines. Found one to do it. There was a company that made plasma, well, plasma phoresis bags, bags used to collect plasma, was able to repurpose the bags for collecting whole blood. And he did it, did it quickly. You know, we promised him a very efficient regulatory process. When he did it, I tweeted it out, you know, on Twitter and gave mm -hmm. him props. You make those phone calls. You get companies engaged in those things. I don't think enough of that happened. Operation Warp Speed, I don't think Operation Warp Speed was a solution to what I'm talking about here. Mm -hmm. Um Maybe maybe in narrowly as it related to certain of the vaccines. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when I think op, when, it, when history looks back on Operation Warp Seed, my view is Operation Warp Seed was a recognition that we didn't have a government agency capable of quarterbacking the pandemic response. And we had to bring together different agencies to handle different aspects of the mission. Like that we had a presumption CDC had the ball in the beginning. Really, 
CDC had one aspect of the ball. They were the scientists. We needed to marry them with something like FEMA, something with mm. more of a logistical capability. Operation Warp Suit, in my view, was a recognition that you know, you had the scientists at NIH who can inform product development and the regulators needed to be involved at FDA, but you also needed someone with logistical capacity like the DOD. Mm-hmm. And so Warp Speed was a marriage of those three entities. But when history looks back and looks at what Warp Speed did, um, you know, Warp Speed definitely helped um, accelerate the development and the scale-up of the Moderna vaccine. Pfizer didn't actively participate in Operation Warp Speed. Um, that's been on the record. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying Operation certain aspects of Operation Warp Speed weren't helpful to Pfizer, but it, the development plan wasn't run by Pfizer. Pfizer ran its own clinical trials. Pfizer scaled its own manufacturing. The agreement that Operation Warp Speed ultimately offered Pfizer was a purchase agreement if and when the vaccine was successful. So right. it was basically a guaranteed purchase. The other things that Operation Warp Speed did was make investments in many other vaccines and therapeutics. None of the other vaccines are available. And the therapeutics, um, the ones that are available, we don't have anywhere near sufficient supply. And that was a foreseeable challenge. The fact that the Merck, we only have 1.7 million doses of the Merck drug, a mm-hmm. drug that looks to be highly successful, um, why don't we have 50, 80 million doses? Right, right. We have 50 to 80 million doses of flu drugs sitting in the strategic national stockpile, and they procured 1.7 million doses of a drug for an active pandemic and stockpiled 80 million doses for a pandemic that is feared and, and is some, some at some point off in the way future. I just don't think that there was enough focus on the therapeutics and the vaccines that we're focused on. You know, unfortunately, science is hard, um, and the portfolio didn't work. The two vaccines that are available and authorized of that portfolio, which must must have included at least eight to 10 vaccines, are Moderna and Pfizer. And the J&J vaccine, which is very successful, has also had challenges scaling up production. All right, slight digression. How good are, like, is is the Russian Sputnik V, whatever it's called, um, is it garbage? Is it okay? Would you, if if you had no choice for something... If you had a choice between nothing and that, would you take it? And same thing with the various Chinese, you know, vaccines. Well, the Russian vaccine is whatever you want it to be since they didn't publish any data. So um, <laughs> I can't answer the question. I mean, if you if you accept the Russian sort of pronouncements of it, it's, it's really good. Um, but couldn't you tell from like, I, I know you want, and I think you're right about this, you want intelligence agencies to do have a public health face too. But even just sort of anecdotally slash epidemiologically, even if you don't trust the Russian numbers about infections and death rates, you can still probably glean from what's going on in Russia whether or not it looks like a vaccinated population. You really, yeah, you can't though because they they still have um, they're still from what we gather are under vaccinated. They still have a lot of spread of the infection. The markets that they put the vaccine in, they haven't put it in in any density that. If it was working, you'd see a treatment effect. There's no market that there's like a lot of Russian vaccine in, and you see the you see the virus just just being curtailed. So you can argue it both ways. You can say, well, we haven't vaccinated enough people, so it's still spreading in the markets and where it's been allocated, or you could say it doesn't work, and so it's still spreading in the markets where it's been allocated. The thing that the thing that um, gives me some pause about the Russian vaccine is that it's two different viral vectors. So so it's like the J&J vaccine or the AstraZeneca vaccine in that what it's doing is it's using an inert virus to deliver the gene sequence for the spike protein. So, mm-hmm. so with the mRNA vaccines, what you're delivering is the gene sequence itself, like a, a naked piece of the gene sequence wrapped in a fatty molecule. 
with the viral vector vaccines, what you're doing is you're taking a virus and you're inserting that same gene sequence into the virus, and then you're using the virus to then insert the gene sequence into your body. Because mm-hmm. um, virus is what they, what they're you know constructed to do is to unload genetic payloads. In this case, the, the genetic payload they're unloading is the, is the genetic payload that codes for the spike protein. But with the J and J vaccine and the AstraZeneca vaccine, every the first vaccine, the second vaccine are the same virus sequence same mm-hmm. because what what they've done and j and j did a very good job at this is they they specially designed a viral vector that isn't immunogenic in its own right meaning that your body doesn't have an immune response to the vector so it could be redosed because if you give a virus and it delivers this genetic payload but your body says geez that's a virus right i'm going to develop antibodies to the virus then if you give the same virus a second time your body will attack the, the the vector before it has a chance to deliver its genetic payload, so you won't be able to redose someone. But since the J and J vaccine was designed so well, you can redose it over and over and probably over again. The Russians use one viral vector for the first vaccine and a, and a completely different viral vector for the second vaccine. So pretty good indication that they know that their their vector that itself that they're using is immunogenic and you're developing antibodies against the vector so it's not going to be able to be redosed hmm. that is complete speculation mm-hmm. i don't know any i don't know this but but the fact that you've used two completely different vectors suggests that there's immunogenicity against the vector that's the only thing that i could surmise that gives me a little bit of pause but there's no data so yeah. you know we're forced to uh, have a lot of conjecture with no data all right since we're in the hard science phase of this conversation <laughs> Uh, <laughs> like, can you just sort of settle once and for all? I, I, this is a thing even among friends, Ron Johnson just said on the Senate floor this last week that he's not going to get vaccinated because he had COVID, which is better for you, uh, uh, for which provides better protection, um, having had the disease, the virus or getting vaccinated and why should people who've had it still get vaccinated? Yeah, I, so first of all, the, on the first question, I, I think it's just the wrong question to be asking. Um, I can make an argument why vaccination provides for more robust immunity. I could point to studies that suggest that natural infection provides a more robust immunity. I think if there's any difference between natural infection versus vaccination, it's going to mar- largely come out in a wash for most people. Mm-hmm. This isn't like the operative critical clinical question. I think the operative clinical question is, does natural infection provide a period of sustained and robust immunity? And I think the answer to that is yes, mm-hmm. especially people who are infected with the Delta variant, like people who are infected with the old Wuhan variant or maybe B117. I'm not so sure that that immunity is going to persist in perpetuity, hasn't declined, and they're not vulnerable to the Delta variant. But for people who had the Delta variant, Assuming that the Delta variant now becomes a predominant strain, they're going to have a pretty robust immunity against the Delta variant. It, will it last forever? No. This mm-hmm. isn't like SARS-1 where this is going to be immunity forever. But it, it will last a period of time. At some point, everyone who has been infected, who's relying on natural immunity to give them a measure of protection, will need to get vaccinated. And people say, well, what's the advantage of the vaccine if I have natural immunity? The advantage of the vaccine is twofold. Number one, if you do get vaccinated after you've been infected, that the data is very clear there that you develop a really robust immunity because there is are different elements of the immune system being stimulated with natural infection versus the vaccine. The vaccine, for example, gives a much better presentation of the spike protein. Mm-hmm. The, the infection itself tries to hide the spike protein, so our bodies don't see it that well. So we we tend not to develop as good antibodies against all the parts of the spike protein. The vaccine 
um, it, it, by design, stabilizes the spike protein to give a really good presentation to your body of it. So your body's able to develop more antibodies against more parts of the spike protein. So there are different features of how the immune system is being stimulated um, in the case of natural infection versus vaccination. Not saying one is better than the other, it's just different. So, mm -hmm. so people who are infected, who get vaccinated, get a very robust immunity. And then the final point is that I, I've said eventually everyone, people say, well, why should I get vaccinated after I've been infected? And the answer is because you, your in, immunity is not going to be durable and it's going to be need to be redosed at some point. And it's really hard to redose the infection. <laughs> you know, you can redose the vaccine, right? We, right. we can redose the vaccine every year for older individuals. But for people who are relying on their natural immunity, if it wanes after a year, which is probably going to be the case, either they're going to get vaccinated or they're going to get infected again. And mm -hmm. you don't want to be in a situation where you just continuously get infected with this virus, which is what's going to end up happening. This is a virus we're all going to end up getting. And we're probably going to all end up getting more than once. Um, and even, even many of us vaccinated will end up getting a mild or asymptomatic infection at one point. This is going to be much more flu-like, I think, over time than SARS-1 or MERS-like. But flu-like is okay if, in fact, we have a certain... I mean, people die from the flu. You know, flu's a serious thing. But we're getting to the point where, it, unless you have other comorbidities, it's not a death sentence. It's not going to be a death sentence. I think that that's right. I think that the, we can substantially... We have substantially reduced the death and disease. from A lot of the extreme morbidity that we're seeing is in the unvaccinated population. You know, tragically, that population will develop immunity. Um, they just are going to do it through the hardest way possible, which is a course of natural infection. But um, you're going to see on the back end of this Delta wave, I think you're going to see hospitalizations and deaths decline quite sharply. Trevor Bedford, you know, has put out some estimates recently. He's a very good uh, genetic epidemiologist, just won the Howard Hughes and, and um, the MacArthur Fellowship thinks that there'll be probably 80,000 deaths a year from COVID. Um, that's that's on par with a really bad flu season. In 2017-2018 flu season, we had 80,000 deaths from flu. Um, you know, it's, it's sustainable, it's grim, it's sustainable, but I think what makes it, is going to make it hard to bear is that we already have a flu. And if you have two, two pathogens circulating alongside each other, each causing 80,000 deaths a year, that's probably too much death to death and disease for society to bear without changing how we live in certain subtle ways that I think don't prevent us from living li our lives as usual, but add a layer of protection against respiratory pathogens, you know, better air filtration in indoor spaces, de-densifying uh, confined spaces where possible, encouraging people really to stay home when they're not feeling well, making home testing widely accessible, trying to get vaccination rates up for both COVID and flu. There's things we're going to do differently. Wearing masks on a voluntary basis when you're out in public. Like I fully would expect that I'll be wearing a mask in the airport next year, not because the government's telling me I have to, but because, you know, I, I want to feel safe and I don't want people to see me. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, in the time we have left, I, I have some more meta questions. Everything you say about CDC and, and also FDA, doesn't this sort of suggest that um, maybe these agencies and, and public health in general got way too caught up with metaphorical epidemics and should have stayed, kept its eye, stayed in its lane and kept its eye on the ball. Uh, whether I know we disagree on some of the stuff about vaping, but the CDC, you know, talking about violence is a, you know, as a public health issue, guns is a public health issue. You can go down a long list of things where this sort of metaphorical approach to epidemics actually leads you to take your eye off the ball about the potential threat of epidemics. Yeah. Look, 
In the book, I one of my recommendations that I thought would get me the most um, blowback was that we should pull the prevention work out of CDC and just make it an agency focused on disease control and go back to its more national security roots. And I thought I would get attacked for that. And I guess, I guess the presumption give it time. Yeah, well, either people haven't read read it yet, or people perceive it to be so politically unrealistic that they don't even think it's worth criticizing. <laughs> um, and I'm not sure which one, but I do think that there that over time what's happened in that agency is the disease prevention work has uh, subsumed a lot of the the ethos, culture, and just day-to-day function of that agency, you know, reducing heart disease, reducing smoking. And the view, the portion of that agency that People have that romantic view around of the people going in with with you know suits into a hot zone and extracting samples. The epidemiological intelligence service that's become a very small part of the agency. I mean, the mm-hmm. part of the agency that that the movies are made about is actually very little of the work that goes on there. And it's not to say that the two functions can't co- coexist, but they haven't been able to coexist. And I think the most expedient way to try to reform government might be to really focus CDC on being a national security asset and a disease control agency and take the prevention work and put it with an agency like the NIH or maybe with the Assistant Secretary of Health where it could be more properly resourced, where it could be under closer super political leadership to give it actually more prominence, not less. Um, you know, what happens is the, the, the pen, if you're an epidemiologist, there's sort of two schools of epidemiology, if you will. There's epidemiologists who work on a sort of disease prevention, you know, how do we reduce heart disease? And there's epidemiologists who work on outbreaks in West Africa. Right. And the ones who work on the outbreaks and have more of a national security veneer to their work that sort of straddle that world between public health and national security, and many of them do work in the Pentagon with other agencies, you don't, you only have those pandemics every 10 years. And so over time, more people who train in epidemiology gravitate into the other areas of the field. And there's not a lot of people like Caitlin Rivers or Dylan, Dylan George, the people who work in that sort of national security type of lane. Um, all right. So I know you're an MD and you don't, you're not a psychiatrist, um, but I have a theory. These uh, are all being stated as fact. <laughs> um, I have a theory that, um, that there's good reason to believe that pandemics in general for sociobiological, psychological reasons just make people crazy. Um, that, uh, there's something about unseen, invisible enemies. You know, they have these, like these, the example I often use is there are these social psychologists who get hired to visit like communities and in front of like a town meeting, they'll drink a bottle of recycled wastewater because people are, have this, lizard brain aversion, even if you explain the science to them that through reverse osmosis, you can make this perfectly, you can even take the fluoride out of the water. They can't get their heads around the idea that this was wastewater and it freaks them out. And I think pandemics sort of have a similar effect insofar as they make people nuts. And so you see road rages through the roof, all these events on planes, your people being tied down with duct tape. I think a big chunk of the, the that murder spike has less to do with defund the police rhetoric and BLM and more to do with the fact that people are going nuts, in part because of lockdowns, not just the pandemic, right? Lockdowns, I think, fuel some of this. Um, is there anybody doing good or, first of all, do you think that's right? But second of all, is there, was, was there anybody who anticipated 
the psychological tumult of this pandemic. And because I'm going to simply assert Donald Trump was not well equipped to reassure people um, in a sober and reasonable way about a lot of this stuff. Um, is this something that like should be part of the planning for future pandemics? I think a lot of people worried about the the cultural psychological impact of um, of the pandemic uh, and what what we were doing more more importantly what we were doing in response to the pandemic on on society and I think a lot of what you describe I mean there's two sort of threads there and one is just pandemics generally you know sort of disperse something in the air that has a, a, a you know a psychological impact on people or just sort of the the nature of a pandemic, the pervasiveness of a pandemic threat, which I, I agree with. It's hard. It's harder to, um, I think, quantify and qualify that. Mm-hmm. Like that, what what does that pervasive sense of risk do to a person's psychology? It's easier to qualify and quantify what is it, what does it do to a person when you shut down their business or make the kids have sure. to be homeschooled. And I think that it's that second component that was very evident. People worried a lot about um, was there was there a deliberate policymaking effort that sort of said, these are the risks we're trying to mitigate uh, or the amount of risk reduction we're trying to achieve. And these are the different measures we can adopt and how much risk reduction each of them could could achieve. Let's try to, you know, get the most risk reduction for the least cost. No, absolutely not. There was never a deliberate approach to policymaking that way, just like there isn't a deliberate approach to the vaccines right now. You know, you could... I've talked about this in the context of mandates. There's a lot of things you can do to get incrementally more people vaccinated, but they're going to come with costs. The more you impose strict mandates and impose mandates on on more private and local elements of society, the more you're going to engender opposition that's going to create this sort of anti-vaccine movement. You're you're actually creating it. Mm -hmm. And that's going to have effects not just in the context of COVID, that's going to now make mandates something that divides us politically and culturally and is going to affect vaccination rates across the board. If this whole group of people now define their view of their own personal liberty along the lines of whether they were or weren't willing to take a vaccine, that's going to hurt us badly for the future because vaccines were generally something that we didn't fight over. Most people took their flu vaccine and and let their kids get immunized with the childhood schedule, even if they had misgivings about it. Now it's going to be something that's much more divisive. And I don't think at any point this administration, and I've had this conversation with them, sat down and said, okay, we're at 78% of adults currently vaccinated with at least one dose. Where do we want to get to? And what are the different policies that will get us increments of, of people vaccinated? My, my guess is that we we, we can and probably could get to 85%. We're at 78% now. 85, it's not that far away, right? Right. We're not going to get much further than 85%. We don't even get much above 90% with a childhood immunization schedule like measles, mumps, and rubella. So what are the what are the different policies to get us there? And let's start with the easy ones. Let's put a mandate in Medicare. Let's have all the Medicare plans have to me- uh, vaccinate their Medicare patients. Let's put a mandate on the federal workforce. You know, the federal workforce works for the federal government. That makes eminent sense. Then you go up the list and then you get to let's mandate small businesses. That's the one that's going to be the most divisive. Right. Do we need to reach for that one? That was never done. And getting back to your original question, I don't think anybody thought about the mitigation in terms of the impact and what was going to get us the most bang for our buck. We were at a point in time, and I understand it early on, we were at a point in time where we had, it was all of the above. We were hitting the red button. It was, a you know, New York was on the brink of collapse. We had to do everything we can to get better control. But once we had control of this pandemic, 
then there was an opportunity to take a step back and try to make judgments about not just what was going to achieve you the most risk mitigation, but getting back to the original question about CDC, where was the best science? What were we most certain about? Was, was, were we really certain that wearing masks would reduce spread, but not so certain that six feet really made a difference? Because if we were really certain about the masks, if you're, if you're a policymaker, you implement the mask mandate first, and then maybe you relax the six feet requirement. Right. But the CDC provided no information for policymakers to make decisions about which ones were more certain versus less. So it all had equal weight. And that was a real failure of policymaking. Um, so this leads to, and again, you're not a psychiatrist, never mind a social psychologist, but do you think if Trump had won anti-vax sentiment would be stronger on the left and and not what it is on the right and because it feels to me like i think your your points about mandates are exactly right but part of the problem with the whole pandemic is that we live in a very polarized time i you know the mask stuff i thought was so you know i as i often say i'm i'm opposed to both maskophobia and maskophilia um i mean is that, is that going to be the second um, bad word that you use? You can get the E now? Um, no, not really, no. Mascophilia? No. Okay. No. I mean, I, 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 could, I could freelance on what one does when one is guilty of mascophilia, uh, subject to mascophilia, that would get me that E, but I'm not going to do that. Um, uh, um, you know, like eyes wide shut, there was a lot of mascophilia. Um, but anyway, so... <laughs> That's the... <laughs> um, so uh but like it seems like you know there was it seemed like if trump was going to get real if trump got reelected, both biden and kamala harris had laid down these sort of markers that they didn't trump trust the trump vaccine anti-vax sentiment prior to five years you know three years ago was more prevalent on sort of the robert f kennedy left than it was on the right conservatives used to mock people who were anti-vax um do you think that like this really was, I mean, what do you make of that? Is, is, is the anti-vax stuff more a lagging indicator of the political and cultural polarization, or do you think it's a thing in its own right? I don't know. Uh, you know, President Trump wasn't anti-mask until anti-mask became something that was in the media and, and he sort of popularized his sentiment. Um, and I think the president probably, I talk about in the book, had some innate um, disdain for masks, but it was more because he felt that they made people look funny. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know how the, the vaccine would have, uh, cut if President Trump was president. I, I think that a lot of the, um, a lot of the anti-vaccine sentiment, at least as far as COVID, and it's gotten broader than that and has bled outside this sort of narrow construct. But I think a lot of it was rooted initially in some of the, um, the mandates and, you know, the perception among individuals, that was something that they were being compelled to do. And when it became something that they felt that they were being compelled to do, or even not even compelled by legally or through their job, but compelled by social constructs, like, you know, how could you not get vaccinated? They were being shamed into doing it, that that bred resistance. And I think, I think that was the germ of some of this. And then the, then the political class picked it up and used it as something that they could drive a wedge through, wedge use as a wedge to drive a political narrative. Like there was a there was a sentiment there, born of understandable anxiety, and then it became political fodder because it was an attractive way to galvanize people behind something that was anti-government, 
anti-administration, anti-intellectual class, public health officials, whatever it was that you were you were shooting at. Did you um, disagree with that? No, I, I think I mean I mean I, I think that's right. I think the problem is is that it's um it's an overdetermined phenomenon. Right? There are just so many reasons why we, we can't have nice things that uh, finding a single narrative that explains all of it. Or so what, then if there's no single narrative, why ask me the question? To see what your, which, narrative you, <laughs> which narrative you think is, is, is right. I mean, look, uh, there are lots of things that have, lot, you know, why are Jews so liberal? I can give you a bunch of different reasons. I'd like to know your reasons. You know, I mean, like, these things are interesting. Um, uh, uh, but, uh, you know... Got, Besides, it's a freaking podcast. You got to make conversation. <laughs> um, so all in all, like, just to sort of close this out, and people will be, should be incredibly impressed with my restraint that I think I barely mentioned Donald Trump's name. But um, you kind of, let me put it this way. I used to say uh, that there were only two people who worked in high profile people who worked in the Trump administration who maintained their integrity and their credibility and improved their political profile um, in the process, not just on the right, but with the general public. I used to say it was you and Nikki Haley. Nikki, you know, my wife, who my wife worked for, and I have fondness personally, has not done so well since she's left. But you've managed to sort of stay credible with a lot of different constituencies that hate each other <laughs> um, and compete with each other. Um, uh, what do you attribute that to, um, other than your just general sagacity and decency? Besides that. Besides that, yeah. Look, um, I, I attribute my success when I was in government to the, to the fact that I was very focused on making the agency work. I, you know, I went in there. Um, I understood the public health mission of that agency. I was committed to it. Uh, I think I earned the trust of the people who worked there, and they understood that I was aligned with trying to advance that agency's mission. And that that doesn't always mean that I align myself with, a, with whatever policy someone wanted to promulgate. You know, we worked to shape the policies in a way that we could get them enacted. But I don't think most people who worked with me closely in that agency questioned my commitment to the underlying goals of what of what we were trying to achieve. And I think ultimately I was able to convince Congress of that as well. Um, and that, you know, having good relationships on Capitol Hill, and I invested a lot of time in building those relationships, gave me the ability to be an effective policymaker in Washington on behalf of FDA. As far as the administration is concerned, you know, I had a lot of friends in the administration in various roles who trusted me, gave me um, a lot of latitude to make policy. And the president himself, my interactions with him were good. He he seemed to trust what I was doing, seemed to like what I was doing. Um, you know, he's he's very impressionistic, as you know. He seemed to like my style about how I went about um, operating and trying to get things done. And that was very important because other agencies, when they went up against me on various uh, issues where they were trying to encroach on my agency's FDA's prerogatives, take away some of our authorities, trying to prevent me from advancing certain policies. Trying to steal your IP. <laughs> yeah. it, if they knew that it was going to end up in the White House and could potentially end up in the Oval Office, I think that there was a presumption that I would win those arguments. And so there were a lot of things that I won without having to fight. Um, That's an interesting way to put it. Um, all right. So uh, 
what's next? What are you going to, like, the book tour has got to be almost over, right? You know, I mean, you've, you've now, you know, hit the ne plus ultra of book promotion. You've been on the remnant. What, what, what is, uh. I saved the best for last. That's right. What is your, uh, um, you're going to go back to government? You're going to take a long vacation? What are you going to do? Well, I'll definitely take a long vacation after this book. As you know, um, these endeavors uh, are all-encompassing all the last year in terms of putting this together. Look, I hope that um, that we move on from the acute phase of this pandemic and get into a discussion around how to prepare better for the future. The book was really written with, with a sort of... Um, an expectation that we would be in the middle of that debate right now. We're not. Yeah. I, I thought this because of the Delta variant. Well, because the political class hasn't taken up the debate about how do we prepare better for the next pandemic. I mean, I thought that we'd have a commission yeah. and I'd be, I'd be, you know, handing books out to everyone on the commission, <laughs> you know, and, and they'd all have it at their desk and be thumbing through it during the hearings. We, that process has not started and it surprises me. I thought that the timing of this book would actually come out coincident with that process. I think that process will eventually get started. I'd hope to be a part of it. I think the book provides at least an intellectual basis in terms of my thoughts on how I think we can do things better in the future. And I hope to be a part of that discussion. Um, and you don't, I mean, most of the time I've known you, you also, you still did like actual doctor stuff in hospitals. Right now, right now I'm not practicing. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. Well, Scott Gottlieb. Oh, one last thing. Does it drive you crazy the way Joe Scarborough pronounces your last name? Have you ever noticed this? I never noticed it. What does he say? He says Gottlieb. Like, mm. like instead of got milk, Gottlieb. I mean, it's really weird and it drives me crazy. Anyway, uh, Scott Gottlieb, uh, delighted to have you on. Uh, it's a great book, uh, Uncontrolled Spread. And thank you for being on The Remnant. Thanks for having me. All right. So uh, Scott Gottlieb has uh, left the studio and, um, and like literally left the studio because we're physically here. And I am sure I will hear from lots of listeners about why didn't I ask this, that, or the other thing. And my only explanation is it didn't occur to me in the moment to ask this, that, or the other thing. And um, um, stay tuned or, you know, uh, check out the Dispatch podcast. We did a, when I say we, I mean uh, Steve Hayes and I, we did a kind of strange, at times, I, I, have, I have no idea whether you people will enjoy it or not, but we, did th we thought it was worth doing a two-year anniversary um, update about how the dispatch is going, what we're doing, what our plans are, our thoughts, our feelings. Um, you'll laugh, you'll cry, um, but that'll be going out in the dispatch um, podcast channel uh, where maybe we'll put it on the Remnant one, I don't know. Um, but check that out if you're interested. If you're not interested, uh, I understand. Um, regardless, I just want to say one more time, thanks to everybody who's been so supportive and um, um, and encouraging over these last two years with the dispatch. Um, I think our best days are definitely still ahead of us. Um, when I asked last night, Caleb, our producer, for um, you know topics that Steve and I should talk about on this 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 sort of dispatch update thing. He said, well, the question I get the most is, are you guys going to make it? And, uh, the short answer to that is yes. I mean, will we make it for a century? I don't know. Will we make it for the foreseeable future? For sure. Um, our trend lines are going up, not down. And we're very proud of that. And it has a lot to do with a lot of the listeners of this podcast. So, uh, thank you sincerely. And with that, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. <laughs>